0: Let's pray. God, uh, we thank you for these people. Uh, We ask that your Holy Spirit would be here with us to minister to us individually, as well as a community as we go about doing your kingdom works here in Oakland. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 12, going through verse 21, and we're talking about perfection. Last week, we looked at um, how we can live our life. And one of the options we we talked about last week was to live as a legalist and to live by more rules. And we looked a little into Paul's legalistic life and and read that it wasn't just a theoretical way for him to live, but it was actually how he really lived for, for a time in his life. But that he was no longer living in that way because he realized that righteousness before God can't be earned. Righteousness is a gift from God through faith By his grace and his love for us is what makes that available to us. Jesus dying on the cross did the work of justification for us of being forgiven from all of our sin by believing in Jesus and Jesus resurrecting from the dead, giving us hope for a changed life, a regenerated and spiritually renewed life. And so it's by the grace of God that we can have a relationship with God and not because we have somehow earned it. We can falsely deliver this gospel, and I think that oftentimes Christians do, if we attach this idea that we can earn righteousness. There are Christians who have presented the gospel in such a way that people feel they have have to have everything right in their life before they can have a relationship with Jesus. That's so not true. You don't have to have everything just right to have a relationship with Jesus. That's why He died for you. His death on the cross was enough. He did it. It's done. And so I'm not saying that it's all right to compromise yourself with sin, but sometimes Christians present a gospel as if Christ's death wasn't enough to cleanse people of their sins when his grace is sufficient. And Paul knew that because if anyone could boast about themselves, about what their credentials were or how life was lived, it was him. Right? In the first... Part of chapter three of Philippians, it was a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised the eighth day, uh, tribe of Benjamin, all these different things. And he was saying, that's me. I got all the credentials. I lived it. I'm blameless. But Paul knew it was all because of God's grace. And today we're going to go uh, look at Paul um, at what Paul will be pointing us to by building on what we shared last week. And we're also going to be looking at a life on the other side of the spectrum swinging it the other way a life without laws to live a life how we want to based on how we feel and what we like doing and paul has written this letter to address address both lifestyles last week was one of legalism we're going to look at the pendulum's uh, shift and look at life without laws and um, living according to our appetites living according to our flesh So let's start with a couple of verses from last week's message, starting in verses 10 and 11. Actually, just those two verses that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul is writing that he wants a new life that comes from the resurrection of the dead. and He wants to completely die to his sin and come out a new creation with a changed life. To die to himself and to become a regenerated person. And sometimes when we present the gospel, all we present is salvation. You're saved. And then we leave it at that. But salvation, it's not just about salvation, is it? It's not just about justification. The Christian life is not just about justification. The Christian life is also about a new creation. A new life. A regenerated life. A spiritually renewed life. That is available to you because of Jesus Rising from the dead. He died for your sins. so You're clean. But he resurrected so you can have a new life. And now we pick up where we left off with Paul saying, I haven't arrived yet. Paul wants to be perfect like Jesus, but there's this not yet element um, in getting there. Verse 12. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Paul is talking about perfection. And that he isn't there yet. And we did a study on the Sermon on the Mount a few months ago, and I don't think any of us can say we live our lives exactly how it's laid out there, can we? Living a life like that is far from easy. And for those of us who think we're even close to that, please read Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, where it reads, Be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. No problem, right? That's easy. And some may argue that the word perfect isn't uh, translated correctly, that it should be something more along the lines of mature. But that isn't easy either, is it? Be mature just as your father in heaven is mature. No matter what you put in there, it's going to be tough. And impossible, actually. Right? And this is an impossible standard. But it's the only good and acceptable standard. Perfection. What does perfection look like? No, it's not the boy or girl that you're interested in. Like, oh, he's perfect. Hmm. It looks like Jesus. Totally out of our reach right now. Like some of the boys and girls that you're attracted to. But, But something Paul is reaching for. Right? And, and and the way we get there is we press on. We we run a race that isn't over yet. But as we continue running, we get closer to the finish where, where there's a prize at the end of that. And Paul could have been questioning why God threw him down at the road, uh, road to Damascus. But whatever the reasons were, Paul wanted to lay hold of the reasons. He wanted to understand them, to grab on and, and fall in line with God's purposes, which we learned from last week's. Uh, message includes suffering. It includes suffering. And it includes totally dying to ourselves so that we may fully live because of Christ's resurrection power. And this can be pretty frustrating, can't it? Right? But, but, but Paul grabs on. He lays hold of that which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. God lays hold of us to make us into the image of His Son. To be perfect like Jesus. This is the only goal worth shooting for. But how do you go after such a lofty goal? How do you go after a goal that is impossible to reach? You can't reach it. Yet. But every step you take towards that goal now is the best step you can possibly take. And you won't reach it in your lifetime. There's a not yet element to this, but you can get closer. And John Wesley, uh, who was a great evangelist, and he believed that we could be perfect, even though he believed that he wasn't perfect. And I remember when when I was a teenager, my dad uh, was having a discussion with another Christian man who, who came from a Wesleyan tradition. And he was a pastor. He was actually uh, the pastor that kind of led our youth group. And um, and I, I was playing like Monopoly in the youth room with my friends, and um, I didn't hear their conversation until my dad asked this guy if he thought he was perfect. And I was like, oh, a perfect man. I want to meet him. And, and my ears perked up and I wanted to see the perfect man. I saw it was my pastor guy. And I was like, oh, that's not him. And so, <laughs> but then my, my dad asked, asked him if he no longer sinned. And he said, no, I don't. I said, wow, I had no idea Jesus was Chinese. <laughs> and then, then my dad, um, my dad asked if, to speak to his wife so that he could ask her if, if he was perfect. Um, she didn't. And in fact, she thought he was pretty far from it. That my dad had to start this marital counseling. And so none of us are there Yet. Yet. But it's something we press for, we, we work towards, and it's a good goal to shoot for. To be Christ-like is a good thing. Anything less than perfection is not Jesus. Jesus is perfection. And, and we know we aren't going to be perfect, but shooting for it is good even though it's out of our reach in our lifetime. And there's a not-yet element to it. We, we work towards it, and the goal is worth shooting for. The goal right now is not to be there, but it's to get there. Verse 13, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. And this is important in our efforts to attain perfection. We can turn around and and look at our past in order to face it. right? But after you have faced your past, we have to be able to turn our head forward towards Jesus. And Our past doesn't dictate our future. Don't let the past weigh you down from where you're going. See, as a follower of Jesus, Jesus dictates our future. We follow Jesus. So wherever He is heading is the direction we are going. So when we confess our sins and, and we face them and we deal with them, then we can actually then move forward. But it's so hard to forget, isn't it? I mean, we can do all this other stuff, but we always like remember. There's always this lingering thing that we remember. But Jesus died justification he died so that we can forget our sins he doesn't recall your. he doesn't remember your sins once you confess it, he's he's cool right and and what jesus did on the cross for our sins that was enough that was enough it was taken care of by his death on the cross you confess it and, and do the right things to make things right you know you restore some things you reconcile some things ask for forgiveness and you move forward it can be frustrating, but you have to move forward. Don't let that hold you back. And that doesn't mean that, that we take sin lightly and that we don't address it. This is not some escape clause for you to run away from sin in your life and not take it seriously that, that you might have hurt some people along the way or that you, you've sinned against God. Grace does not give us license to sin. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? See, We are to deal with our sin and then we move forward. We have a C.S. Lewis class going on this quarter on Wednesdays. And I think Lewis is brilliant. And I'm really glad that Evan uh, agreed to do this class for us. And in one of Lewis's books, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, it's the fifth book in the Chronicles of Narnia series. And, it's, and the first line of the book it reads, There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. And Eustace is, is a really interesting character. And simply put, Eustace is a punk. He's a punk. And earlier in, earlier in the books of the Chronicles of Narnia, he's just not a pleasant kid. And uh, Lewis describes Eustace's parents as very up-to-date and advanced people who send him to a progressive mixed school. So his parents are very Berkeley-like. And... And Eustace um, calls his parents by their first names. You you see those are the Berkeley kind of and and his his parents are vegetarians, Um, non-smokers. I don't know about that one. And teetotalers, meaning that they totally abstain from alcohol. I don't know about that one. But everything else, Berkeley ish. Right. And so. But the funny thing is, back in this time when this was written, these kind of lifestyles were totally unheard of in Britain. Totally unheard of. And anyway, Eustace is on a ship. And when the ship stops, he he just takes off because he wants to avoid working. So he takes off. So he wanders up this mountain and he sees this dead dragon. And because of a storm, he takes cover in this dragon's lair and Eustace turns into a dragon as a result of sleeping on the on the dragon's hoard. And, and C.S. Lewis writes with greedy and dragonish thoughts in his head. And Eustace sees uh, what he has be, what has become of him through a reflection that he sees in the water, and, and he was like, "I'm a dragon," and he wants to change, but he can't. So he returns to the boat, and the crew nearly attacks him because they think he's a he's a dragon. But Lucy saves him, and 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 then being a dragon. It starts to change Eustace. He starts seeing himself for, for what he really is. And so he starts seeing things differently from a different perspective. It wasn't all about this, this 10-year-old boy anymore wanting to get what he wants and stuff. like. He was seeing uh, from a dragon perspective, like, oh, I, I guess I need to be more sensitive and things like that. And the ship wants to leave the island, but it can't because it wasn't made to hold the dragon. Then comes the lion Aslan. And Aslan is a symbol of Jesus. And the great lion comes to Eustace and says to him, follow me. And Eustace tells us, I just had to follow him. And Aslan leads him up the mountain to this well and, and tells Eustace uh, to undress. And Eustace starts ripping away the dragon scales on him. And he feels pretty good uh, about all of this. And he keeps ripping away out of, it, out of it and so deep that he gets to his skin and he pulls it off. And Eustace walks to the water and then he notices his his scaly foot. And then layer upon layer, there's just scales on his foot. And he rips them off layer upon layer, but he notices that there are still scales on them. And then Aslan tells Eustace that you're going to have to lay down. And Eustace trusts Aslan. He lays down. And Aslan starts ripping away the scales. And Eustace explains, The first rip was so deep it seemed to go right to my heart. Aslan reached Eustace's heart. But Eustace had to lay down his life. He had to trust Aslan. And Aslan returns Eustace to human form, back to a boy, but, but a new person. And Lewis writes, It would be fair, nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still days that he could be very tiresome, but most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. If you try to rip rip parts of yourself that aren't right off, you'll you'll only be able to get so far. Sooner or later you're going to come to this realization that you can only do so much for yourself. But Jesus can take those scales off right to your very heart. Jesus can get deeper than we can ever do for ourselves. And that's is something that Christians um, try to focus on too, in terms of ripping other people's scales off instead of letting Jesus rip their scales off. And we do that in the form of behavior modification. Right? Christians want, oh, you smoke, oh, you should stop smoking. Or you you drink and You should stop drinking. And they have behavior modification. You're sleeping around. You should stop sleeping around. But what people really need is Jesus. They need Jesus to transform their heart. They need Jesus to grab a scale from their heart. Otherwise, it's just skin deep. It's still in there. It still will manifest at some time. People need Jesus. They don't need you. They don't need the church. The behavior modification stuff. Right? They need Jesus to reach in there and grab. And yes, God uses individuals. Yes, God uses the church. Absolutely. He's commissioned us to make disciples right, to the ends of the earth. But we need to direct people to Jesus, not to us. And we talked a little bit about baptism and what that symbolized in last week's message. The dying of the old self. The old person is buried. And a new person, a regenerated person, resurrecting with a new life. And just like Eustace, it's not like, Whoa, boom, new person. It's a process. It started, right? It it, it starts to begin. The cure has begun. And today I'd like to talk about uh, communion. With communion, we have a covenant from Jesus that he will give us a new heart. He will put the Holy Spirit in us and give us a new spirit so that we'll be able to follow him. And it's not about following laws and having a legalistic life. The laws won't lead us to righteousness. Paul told us that. Right? Neither will following our appetites, doing whatever we desire. It's about following Jesus. And it's not just about salvation. It's about salvation and following him for a regenerated life, to move closer to perfection, to be more like Him, to be more Christ-like, to be more like Jesus, step by step. And, and communion is this constant reminder to remember, to step by step become more like Jesus as week after week, we come before the communion table and we remember what was done. Verse 14, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is, is determined to press to, to, to press toward the goal for a prize. To press forward with a purpose. And this takes effort, time, discipline, training. And the idea here is that it's not something passive or, or casual. This is a purposeful exertion toward a goal with diligence. And this is for anything worth shooting for in life, isn't it? if the prize is worth worth pressing forward to or toward then, then it takes effort it takes time it takes discipline it takes training if the prize is worth it you don't go about it casually like a relationship you're wanting to pursue right if you see what you want you're like i love her actually it's more like i lust for her um you're going to work at it aren't you right you're you're going to shower you're going to groom yourself, you're, you're going to wear clean clothes, you're going to work out, you're going to clean your car, you're going to sacrifice time, you're going to do what you have to do, right? And, and that's true of anything worth um, pressing toward, whether it's athletics, academics, relationships, anything you find worthwhile takes effort, time, discipline, training. It doesn't just happen. And oftentimes Christians think it just happens in spiritual life. It doesn't just happen. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes training. It takes discipline. And you know what I find odd? I find it odd when people always pray for wisdom, but all they do is pray for it every once in a while. There's no effort. There's no training. There's no time. There's no discipline to press toward the goal of attaining wisdom. And along with prayer, where's the seeking of wise counsel or or serving, giving of yourself to, to gain experience and to learn or studying the Bible to gain wisdom from it or reading books that of have helped you or researching what you're in need of, uh, in, of wisdom in and, and consistently and, and regularly looking at things so that you can grow. And if you pray, how fervent is that prayer? Is it just over a meal like, oh, God, pray for wisdom. Let's eat. Or when you go to bed. Um, how regularly do you pray? How fervent is your prayer? And wisdom usually doesn't just happen overnight with a single prayer, right? Gotta pray for wisdom. Oh, yes, I see everything clearly now. It's, it's not often that God just plops it into our brain in our sleep, right? Oh, Lord, pray for wisdom, and you wake up and I'm wise. I'm wise now. It's some, if it's something you want, you have to press toward that goal. Yes, God's grace is a gift, and it's sufficient, but it's not cheap. Where's the effort? Where's the time? Where's the discipline? Where's the training? Let's not live as though grace is cheap. Verse 15. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if anything, you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. This is an attitude of a mature believer. To have a mindset that is focused toward the goal of being Christ-like, being perfect. And if you think otherwise, God will reveal this reality to you. Sooner or later, we will all be shown the truth, right? We're all going to die. You'll be shown the truth. Verse 16. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. There are some believers who think differently. They don't agree that there's effort, time, training, discipline involved in their relationship with God um, at the present time. And Paul realizes, realizes this. You know, there's people all different, all different parts of the spectrum. And he's encouraging us to grow wherever we're at. And God is going to reveal what he wants to us. Verse 17, Brethren, join in the following my example, and note those who, who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Paul has decided to live differently than a legalist. And different than those uh, he's talked about um, to talk about, to live according to their appetites and, and to their flesh. People who live a life led by their appetites, by, by getting rid of rules and laws. So he's, he's swung the pendulum the other way now. Okay, we talked about legalistic folks, and, and now we're going to talk about folks that know law. Letting the things we want to lead our lives, that's what leads our lives. No more rules or, or things to tell us what is okay or not okay. And instead of living as a legalist or one who lives according um, to their appetites, Paul encourages the Philippians to follow his example as a mature follower of Jesus. Paul is great at discipling. He's showing showing, um, them how he lives. And he, he just tells those he's discipling to follow him. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. A discipleship uh, relationship is not simply what you say, but it's also how you live. There are people who will refuse to read the Bible, but those people will always be reading you. And you can say you're a follower of Jesus, but it doesn't really amount to much if you don't live like it. Our influence is not just about uh, what we say or the things that we say. It's also how we live. We don't simply teach through our speech, right? We teach through our life. And Jesus is perfection, and, and he's our ultimate example. And while that is true, there are also verses in the Bible that encourage us to look at saints who walk before us, as Paul encouraged us to look at those who so walk and, and to look at their lives. James chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord. And the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So here we have the prophets and Job as examples to follow. And we can learn through people in the Bible as well as people who are further along in their relationship with Jesus who are among us. And we see how Paul discipled Titus and Timothy and encouraged them to continue what he had done for them. Titus chapter 2, verses 6-8 through eight. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned. That one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say to you. And to Timothy, he wrote in First Timothy, chapter four, verse 12. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Who you are speaks so loudly that people can't hear um, a word that you say. There are people out there that, that may know their Bible in their head, but it's very difficult for me to receive from them because I know how they live. There may be truth to what they say, but their testimony makes it difficult for me to receive from them. And they know way more than me. There are a lot of people that know way more than me, spiritually and biblically. But their lifestyle choices, how they treat people, whatever it is. It's hard for me to hear a single word that they say because who they are drowns out their words. I can't hear it. And I'm sure I've been a stumbling block to uh, people receiving the word of God as well. I'm not perfect. But I am pressing toward the goal. And I've done things to drown out what I say. And if you're one of those people who have a problem hearing from me, can you please just hear two words from me right now? Just take that wall down just for a second. Just two. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I hope we can start this process of moving forward, that we forget this and we move forward. And if you still need to talk, um, because I, I know that this is, Kind of cheap, just saying it up from here. But if you need to talk, let's, let's set aside some time in the near future and, and work things out as a brother in Christ. I want to work things out so that the Word of God can flow freely between us. And as a pastor at Regeneration, I want to be like Paul—that I'm an example. But I can't do that for those of for those of you that we have a wall there, and actually I don't know if you're even out there. Um. I hope to be like Paul and say in full confidence, like he writes in First Corinthians chapter eleven, verse one: "Imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ." And in Second Timothy chapter one, verse thirteen, where Paul writes, "Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus." I want to be like that. Verse eighteen. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Weeping. Paul is deeply saddened when when those he cares for have chosen a different path. They're enemies of the cross of Christ. He's deeply concerned for the Philippian church being led astray and he's moved to tears. Verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Whose end is destruction. In rejecting Jesus, it inevitably leads to destruction. Whose God is their belly. Meaning their God is their appetite. Whatever they're wanting. right? Whatever they feel like doing, they do. And, and it's their priority for them to feed that appetite. They, they, they follow that appetite and they will aid uh, aid that appetite in, in whatever they have to do. To compromise their life. They'll do what they have to do to feed it. Their God is their appetite. It's, it's their belly. It's what they hunger for. And the interesting thing about appetites, the more you feed it, they get hungry. you get, you got to starve it out. Whose glory is in their shame. And it's probably referring to lawlessness and sexual immorality. And you know, they're actually proud of things that are shameful. This is something that's very prevalent in our world and in our culture. And Paul could probably phrase this as, whose God is their Genitals. You know, there are Christians who glory in their shame. And a very prevalent one in our society is sex. We're going to Kenya in less than a month. And there is practically an entire generation, mine, that is missing there because of sexual immorality. And it's kind of eerie, actually. You walk, you walk in the streets there and you see... You see this older generation and you see these younger generations. Rohi is full of orphans that are missing their parents. My age. And, and there are consequences to sex outside of its proper boundaries. God created sex. Sex is good. Really good. Right? And, but but there, are, there are serious consequences outside of its proper boundaries. And who set their mind on earthly things, just thinking about what they can get out of being here. What do these three things have in common? I think all of these three things, they're actually good. They're only problematic if we take them out of their proper context. Take the belly egg, for example. We we like to eat, right? We want to eat. Isn't it awesome? That uh, we have to eat and we want to eat, that's a good combination. And um, no matter how busy we get, no matter what happens in our life, we have to eat, we love eating. Everything surrounds eating, right? We had a potluck just now. everything surrounds eating. And there are desires that God has put in us that are good. It's just dangerous when it comes uh, when, when it's some desire leading us and it's not God leading us. And it, And didn't God make us male and female? Didn't didn't He make us sexual? And didn't he make our minds and didn't he give us creativity and logic and knowledge? All of, those, all of those things are good things. I think Paul is telling us not to throw out the laws. He tells us not to be legalistic, but not to throw out the laws. And otherwise, our God becomes our belly, our genitals, our mind. All those things are good things, but those are all pretty bad at being God. And Paul doesn't want us to be legalistic, but he also doesn't want us to be without law. And part of the struggles we have um, is the body that we're in. Our flesh wants us to move in wrong direction. So Paul tells us in the next verses what we have to have to look forward to. A heavenly citizenship with a new body. Verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we are eagerly, also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. Isn't that great? There are privileges and benefits to citizenship. There are millions of people who want American citizenship because of the privileges, the benefits to having that citizenship. So let's put ourselves in, in a Roman's uh, shoes for a moment in Philippi. Uh, these Philippians who are receiving this letter because many of them, if not all of them, they're Roman citizens. And and with that, it comes security and benefits and privileges to be a Roman citizen back then. That was valued very highly. And to be a citizen of the greatest empire of that time, there's a certain security to that, whether it's a safety, financial, commercial, judicial governance. And even though they were far from Rome, they had the same rights, privileges and benefits as a Roman that's in Rome. And Paul knew this really well because he was a Roman citizen. And he knew his rights. He knew that a Roman citizen couldn't be tortured and a Roman citizen couldn't be whipped. Yet in Acts chapter 16, he's thrown in jail after he's beaten with with rods and after they laid many stripes on him. Acts chapter 16, verses 22 through 24. Then the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This happened in Philippi. This is the Philippian jailer who turned his life over to Jesus and helped establish the church in Philippi. And this is the guy that in verses 33 and 34 took them and washed their stripes. And immediately he and his and all his family were baptized. This is the jailer who brought them into his house. He set food before them and he rejoiced having believed in God with all his household. Let's read on in Acts chapter 16, starting in 35. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officer saying, let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported those words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, by the way, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Oops. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. These guys were violating the rights of a Roman citizen. Members of the Roman Empire had privileges. They had rights. You couldn't just arrest them and beat them up and whip them and imprison a Roman citizen and then just release them. And as Roman citizens, there there are recognized civil rights, which the Philippian magistrates severely violated. Why didn't Paul throw out that that he was a Roman citizen before he got beat and whipped? I think it's because he was obedient to Jesus. I think he was obedient to the Holy Spirit. He knew he was going to suffer for Jesus' sake, right? Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. If he didn't allow himself to be mistreated, abused, that the prison guard and his family wouldn't know Jesus. That family was the start of the Philippian church. And Paul placed his hope in being a citizen of heaven, not a citizen of Rome. And Paul is telling them not to place their hope in Roman citizenship, not in governments, but to put it in being a citizen of heaven, not to rely on the government, to rely on Jesus. They knew that Paul was not just speaking out of theory. Because they knew what happened to him when he got beat up and whipped as a Roman citizen. He didn't claim his rights as a Roman. He was focused on his citizenship in heaven. And don't forget that we have privileges and benefits of being citizens of heaven. But we also aren't to forget that we fall under those laws. Right? You get benefits and privileges as an American. But you, you fall under this constitution. You, follow under, you fall under those laws. Not that we are to be legalists. But we aren't to live our life according to whatever we want either, right? We are governed by a set of laws. Being a citizen of of this country, verse 20, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Roman citizens at Philippi um, they would eagerly await for a, a visit from the Roman emperor, and the term Savior was was a title that Caesar would have. Julius Caesar was declared to be the universal Savior of mankind in, in 48 B.C. And then it became a common title for ruling Caesars thereafter. And it was also common for Caesar to have a title of Lord. So maybe Paul is, is kind of playing on this nationalistic pride and substituting that nationalistic pride of Roman citizenship with, with that of kingdom pride, of, of citizenship of heaven. For a citizen of heaven to eagerly await for our Lord, Jesus Christ, for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Not to wait for Caesar, but to await eagerly for Jesus, the true Lord and Savior. Not for a government to rescue us from a bad economy or a stimulus package to rescue us. We we depend on Jesus, not on, on some individual or some governance. Verse 21, Who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Now, part of the solution to being perfect is is having a body that doesn't pull us in the wrong direction. It's not something citizenship or, or someone who we put our hope in can do for us. There's only one Savior. And he got his glorious body when he resurrected. Doesn't having a new body sound good to you? Sounds good to me. You know, I... I, I don't heal as quickly. I, I got an ankle injury like, I don't know, several months ago. I still can't run. And um, I'm not as strong anymore. I'm not as fast anymore. And eventually it happens to all of us. But Jesus will transform our lowly bodies into glorious bodies. And that's when I'm going to laugh at all you guys that work out so hard and, and say, like, we got the same thing. Right. And you should have followed your belly a little more. Um <laughs> So Paul Paul warns us of false teachers and and he tells us not to be legalistic and he tells us not to be lawless and follow our own appetites and our own flesh, but to follow Jesus. And and I think um, in drawing those two contrasts of legalism from verses 1 through 11 and and then of, of just kind of living your life of lawlessness in the last few verses in chapter 3, I think he brings it back actually in the center of Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 10. Through 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. The focus is on Jesus, not on these two different lifestyles. It's focused on Jesus. Who rised from the dead, who died and he raised from the dead. And since Christ resurrected, he has power, power over death even. And that power can be given to us by him to live differently. We don't have to succumb to living a legalistic life depending on ourselves to come up with more rules and following them. And we don't have to swing the other way either where we succumb to living to our appetites in our flesh and depending on ourselves to satisfy all of our needs and our wants and desires. We're to fellowship in his sufferings to die to ourself and to know Jesus and the power of His resurrection. We can depend on Him. We can trust Jesus with our life who makes us perfect. Let's pray. God, so often we have this idea of what perfection is and often it, it ties to different things um, that our culture has influenced us in. Whether it's uh, a lack of suffering or... Uh, being able to fulfill our every desire to eat, drink, and be merry. And um, we have all these different things of, of what the idea of perfection is. And Lord, I ask that we would simply just focus on you to see what perfection is. And God, um, I, I ask that you would show us that um, we can't earn righteousness, uh, though it's not opposed to effort, time, training, discipline. Um, we, we want to be used by you here. We want to be used by you in in, in our church and as well as worldwide. Um, we want to be used in Oakland in the Bay Area um, and all over the world. And God, we uh, um, we just ask that you would do that. And whatever's holding us back, whether it's a, um, a lack of humility or a lack of repentance or anything like that, I ask God that you would you would show us in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.